The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Question of the day, why are people so evil? Uh, now, listen, unless you are either brain dead or sleeping, you realize that there are some very evil people in this world, okay? Now, when I say evil people, I'm talking about Satan-worshipping, child-sacrificing, scum-of-the-earth type people. I'm talking Epstein Island. Pizzagate, adrenochrome-type evil. I'm talking Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab, eugenics-type evil. Now, if you're unfamiliar with these things, then you need to shut off the mainstream media and find an alternative news source. Everything, everything the mainstream media feeds you is lies. If they tell you it's raining, go outside and check because they are making... I mean, the Weather Channel makes stuff up. Have you ever seen the fake stuff they do? They stand in ditches and they say, the water's this high, you know. And they, I mean, what in the world? What's the purpose of that? But they lie to us like crazy. And just let me tell you this. This includes Fox News. I mean, some people think, I'm a real conservative. I watch Fox News. I'm like... <laughs> That's not too smart because they're just as bad as everybody else. You know, they took money and lots of it from the Biden administration to push the COVID vaccines. Fox News did. All right. And the mainstream media, one of the reasons they're so messed up is because in 2012, Obama signed H.R. 4310, which in Section 1078 allows propaganda to be used on U.S. citizens by its own government. So the media is allowed to lie to us, and they do, okay? They do. And the the media, the mainstream media, is the megaphone of the deep state. You know, when I ask why people are so evil, I think there is a percentage of super evil people in this country. I don't think it's the majority of people. I think the majority by far are decent people. Many of them, God-loving, God-fearing people, the majority of them. But we have an upper echelon in government, in Hollywood, in sports that are absolutely evil. And they have the media to push their agenda. So that's all we hear. So we think that's what the whole world's like. No, it's not. A small minority. And what's encouraging is people are pushing back all over. You know, they have bills that they're trying to pass that reduce the sentences for pedophiles. Why? Because they want to normalize that. So badly they want to normalize that. And they're sick. So our world is full of evil people. Why is that? Why are these people so evil? Well... They got a lot of money and they got a lot of power. Now, if you ask most people, most Christians, I think they would, why are the people so evil? They would blame Satan. 
The devil made me do it. You know, these people are just that way. But listen, we as preterists, we can't use that because we know that Satan and the demons were dealt with in AD 70 when our Lord returned in judgment on old covenant Israel and its gods. Look at Matthew 24, 29. Now, this is just part of the Lord's Sermon, <clears throat> the Olivet Discourse. And he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, modern commentators generally understand this and what follows as the end of the world. Okay? But the words immediately after the tribulation of those days show that it's not speaking of a distant event, but something immediately following the tribulation that the Lord's been talking about. And it's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, if you're not familiar with apocalyptic language, the language of the Tanakh, you'll not understand what Christ is saying here at all. And that's one of our big problems. People don't know that stuff. Okay? <laughs> Had, uh, we were out of town for Thanksgiving. And on Thanksgiving Day, we are outside. Just a beautiful day. We were in Carolina. And a couple of JWs come down the street. I said, oh boy, here we go. So they walk up to me and I said, are you guys JWs? And they said, yeah. I said, first error, there's no such thing as Jehovah. So we went into the idea of translating how they came up with Jehovah and they agreed with me, okay, Yahweh's better, but we just, well, I said, you shouldn't use it, okay? It's not, there's, you're not a witness for Jehovah, there's no such thing as Jehovah. All right, then we got into stuff and they were trying to throw stuff at me. I said, you guys understand hermeneutics? And he goes, I don't know what that is. I'm like, yeah, that's really sad. I said, it's a science of biblical interpretation. You know, there's laws for interpreting the Scripture. And I said, you know, one of those laws is audience relevance, you know. And then we went into Revelation. I said, who's Revelation written to? And they're like, oh, to us. And I'm like, really? Were you one of the seven churches in Asia Minor? So we had fun anyway. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a rabbit trail, okay? But you have to be familiar with apocalyptic language, all right? Or you're not going to understand Christ. Because this sounds like the end of the world. But if you're, mil listen, if you're familiar with the first three quarters of the Bible and the language it uses, you're going to understand that they're using the same language here, language that's very common among the prophets. So he says the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Now, he is not talking here about the lights that we see in the sky. Stars is used in the Bible of literal stars, bright lights that are in the firmament. But it's also used of divine beings, gods. The wandering stars that Jude speaks of is a common ancient Jewish idiom in both the Tanakh and the pseudepigrapher literature for divine celestial beings. In the ancient world, the stars were called the hosts of heaven. They were equated with deities. And that's why Deuteronomy says you're not to worship those things. In the Tanakh, the stars of heaven are also called the heavenly host. So this text in Matthew 24 is about the judgment of the gods. Now, Psalm 82 talks about the same thing, about the same judgment. And I don't have time to go into any more detail on this, but I encourage you, if you're not familiar with this, look at our study of Matthew 24. Go look at the study of Matthew, or Psalms 82, and you'll understand where we're coming from here. All right, so if Satan and his demons are gone, why all the evil? And I hear this question all the time. You know, why all the evil? Why are people so evil? Well, some try to explain the evil by holding on to what's called the serpent seed doctrine. Now, 
I want to give you a quote from S.G. Anon. S.G. Anon is a truther. And if I say a truther, does anybody know what I'm talking about? All right. <laughs> truther is a name for someone who is an alternative source of news. Okay? Uh, if you go on Telegram or Truth Social, you can find a lot of these guys that basically they're going around gathering information and they're doing podcasts or whatever and trying to fill you in on, on what is happening. Derek Johnson. Anybody know Derek Johnson? He's a military vet and he is, spends his time tracking planes and he tells us what military planes are in the sky and what they signify. And you know, a lot of these different guys, they're bringing information to us because you can't trust the mainstream media. So these guys are called truthers because they're not liars like the media. They're trying to bring truth. Now, of course, they have different opinion like everybody else, so you've got to pick and choose who you watch, who you listen to. But I'll tell you what, you can learn some real things about what's going on if you do that. Uh, one of these truthers, her name is Nancy Drew. That's not a real name, of course, but she calls herself Nancy Drew. And for the last two years, she's gone to Washington, D.C. every day and filmed and taken pictures. And I'll tell you, it is amazing what she has put on film in D.C. The buildings are empty. There's nothing going on. There's been construction going on because they're destroying underground tunnels in D.C. And, and rescuing children from these tunnels. But one of the things that I thought was very curious, she went to the Washington, she went to the visitor's center in D.C., all right, the main visitor center. So she goes in the visitor center, and she's, you know, laughing. They're laughing, and she goes over to the, there's a huge lighted board with the picture of all the presidents on it, okay? And the last president on it is President Trump, and it says 2017 till, and it's blank. There's no picture of Biden up there. This is in Washington, D.C. It's been two years. They haven't figured out how to do that. Let me tell you, on the military bases, there's a board, a chain of command. You're not going to find Biden's picture on it. That's interesting. Why is that? <laughs> I'll let you think about that. Okay, but <laughs> so you know, I would just encourage you, if you want to get information, find some of these truthers, start following them, you know. The thing I liked about Nancy Drew is she's just going in and taking videos. You can see it with your own eyes. This is, this is you know, this is it. Make your own decisions, you know. Uh, all right, so S.G. Anon is one of these truthers, and he evaluates situations. He's telling people, explaining things to people, what's happening in our current culture and why. Um, in an interview he did, I think last week or the week before, was someone who, another truther, who puts out podcasts called Prophets and Patriots. Well, while he was on that show, S.G. Anon said this, and it really caught my attention. He said, these individuals are descended from the bloodline of Cain. They believe that Cain was the offspring of a union between Eve and the serpent. In other words, Adam and Eve had a holy child of the Creator, and Eve and the serpent had an abominable child known as Cain. This individual, as we know from the book, <laughs> from the book, he says, was the very first incident of murder. Cain is of the Canaanite blood lineage, which is all about subversion of everything good and holy. They believe us to have inherited the place at the side of God that their deity was supposed to have, but lost. And so they have a very deep and ancient... Uh, that word always stumps me up. Vitriol? Vitriol. 
and hatred for humanity because we are made in the image and likeness of God. Now, I'm familiar with this serpent seed doctrine, so it just caught me by surprise that, okay, this is, this is the position he takes. Now, he talks about the Creator God, and he talks about, I, if I had to say, I would say that S.G. Anon is a new age person. You know, he's, that sounds very new age to me, the stuff he says. But, but this is a familiar doctrine, okay? And if you're aware of all the evil that's taking place, and again, you're not going to know it from your TV, okay? But if you're aware that some of the evil that's really taking place, you almost want to believe this is true. I mean, it's like, okay, that explains some things, you know? There's a, there's a line out there that's a bloodline from Satan, and these people are reptilians, okay? Basically. Well, even if that was true, did they just stick to their own race and didn't intermingle along the way at all, you know, for the last couple thousands of years? You know, it just doesn't, doesn't add up, okay? But anyway, <laughs> they just say these people aren't made in the image of God. They're reptilians and they're evil, and that's why they're so messed up, okay? So Cain is the offspring of the union between Eve and the serpent. Now, those who believe in the divine counsel viewpoint... We know that from Genesis 6, that this type of thing is possible. Because in Genesis 6, it says the sons of God, they came down, God's left heaven came down, married human women, had sex with them, and produced Nephilim. Half man, half God. Okay? And these, these Nephilim were giants. They were men of renown. I think the majority of them, if not all of them, were destroyed in the flood. And then, again, David dealt with them in the conquest. You say, well, if they were destroyed in the flood, there might have been a reincursion. I'm not really sure. I think they were wiped out in the flood. There's different views on that. But anyway, they came about after the flood also. So how did that happen? David dealt with that in the conquest. Wiped them out. So that was the end of it. Now, the Nephilim are half man, half God. So when they die, their spirit is where demons come from. All right, so you got these demons roaming around even when they're gone. I believe all those demons and the false gods were destroyed in AD 70. I believe that was part of the warfare. They shut that whole thing down. So understanding that, we say, okay, Cain, you know, was offspring. That's possible. The only problem is the scriptures don't back it up. Genesis 6 talks clearly about what happened there. This stuff is made up, all right? Does the Bible support the serpent seed doctrine? I don't think so. All right. But they'll use verses like 1 John 3, 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother is righteous. This is why people murder because they're serpents, their seed of the serpent. Is that why they murder each other? There's a lot of serpent seeds out there, if that's true, because there's a lot of people that are just sick murderers, all right? These people say that Cain was literally fathered by Satan. Now, the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible says this on verse 12 of 1 John. It says, Jewish tradition extensively elaborated and underlined Cain's sinfulness. Belonged to the evil one. A murderer was a child of the devil. For one of the devil's first works had been to bring death to Adam. Then they say this. Some later Jewish texts even claim that Cain's father 
was the devil himself. All right, so this idea goes back quite a ways. Let me try to summarize what the doctrine actually teaches. It is called the serpent seed doctrine. It's called the dual seed doctrine. It's called the two seed line doctrine. It's a teaching that explains the biblical account of the fall of man by saying that Eve, the sin of Eve was not disobedience to the Lord, but was sexual contact with the serpent, and that Cain was the son of Eve and son of the devil. All right, now, most people have this idea of a snake in a tree. I'm not sure how that worked out, but we'll talk about that. Cain's descendants are, according to this idea, the sons of Satan. And again, I said, if this was true, did they stay separate from any other line so there's no intermingling? What happens when a child of God married and had sex and they produce an offspring that's half devil, half human? You know, it just, it, it just I, I don't see how it'd be possible. All right. But here's the thing. Here's how these people with the, who believe this doctrine work. To them, the serpent, the seed of the serpent includes any race or group that they don't like okay you see where this is going and this doctrine is attractive to some since it offers adherence a soothing basis for justifying their racial hatred hey they're they're seed of the serpent we're allowed to hate them they're not children of god well the serpent seed doctrine is also closely related to other erroneous beliefs such as the christian identity movement uh the Kennanite doctrine the serpent seed teaching you know, again, we talked about the rabbis talked about it a long time ago, but I think it was really popularized by William Branham. And uh, in 1963, Branham preached a sermon in which he indicated that he was a prophet with the anointing of Elijah, who had come to herald Christ's second coming. Just to tell you how whacked he was, okay? We'll get into that next week when we talk about prophecy. But his his teachings continued to be promoted through the William Branham Evangelistic Association, and they reported in 2018 that about 2 million people received their material. So it's, you know, fairly widespread. Here's a quote from Branham. He said, here's what really happened in the Garden of Eden. I guess he popped in and checked it out, all right? The Word says that Eve was beguiled by the serpent. She was actually seduced by the serpent. He was so close to being human. That's interesting to me how he gets, he's so close to being human. Just, you know, really not there, but he's really close. That his seed could and did mingle with that of the woman and cause her to conceive. When this happened, God cursed the serpent. Well, Branham is not the first to preach the serpent seed doctrine, but he's become known as one of the major proponents of the doctrine in modern times. And those who promote this doctrine say that the fall of man was not caused by disobedience, but sexual sin between Eve and Satan. Well, let's look at the text and see what it actually says. All right, Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, serpent here is from the Hebrew nachash, all right? Which, according to Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser, serpent is most likely a triple enton, which is a word or phrase that has three different meanings at once. The root of nachash is nun het shin, 
which is the basis for a noun, a verb, and an adjective in Hebrew. If you take nahash as pointing to the noun, the word here would mean serpent. This is a valid translation, but you must keep in mind that serpent is not a member of the animal kingdom. Okay, forget that snake thing you're seeing, okay? The serpent is not a snake. Now, in reading the scripture, have you ever wondered why so many of God's enemies are described with serpent-like language? I mean, think of Job's Leviathan, or Revelation's dragon, or Daniel's beast from the sea. Why was it a serpent that came to tempt Adam and Eve? Well, the Bible uses all kinds of images to talk about spiritual forces of evil, Images such as serpents, dragons, sea monsters, and other creatures of chaos. And the serpent, the Nakash, here in Genesis 3, is a chaos monster. And the Bible uses chaos monster imagery all over the place to depict God's power over chaos and over evil. For example, Psalm 74. Yet God, my king, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave them as food for the creatures of the wilderness. So this is showing us, listen, there's these chaos monsters. God just smashed them. He crushes them. They're nothing to him. He's got power over them. So in Genesis 3, we have the Nakash causing chaos. But in Genesis 3.15, Yahweh promises a coming deliverer who will crush the serpent of chaos and restore man to Yahweh's presence. So let's expand on this concept of nakash as a triple entente. We've already seen the meaning of a noun is serpent. But if you were to take it as a verb, it would mean deceiver or diviner. Now, nakash could mean deceiver. That option fits the story, right? And hang on to this meaning because we're going to bring out its importance in refuting this serpent seed doctrine. The third aspect of this triple entente is of nakash is the adjective and the adjective would have the meaning of bronze or the shining one now in our text it is ha nakash the shining one now that's interesting because luminosity is a characteristic of divine beings in the hebrew bible and in the a and e text luminosity is not the characteristic of an animal or a man this is a divine being that Eve is dealing with in the garden. It's not a member of the animal kingdom. It's not a snake. It's a member of the divine council. It's a watcher who chose to oppose Yahweh's plan for humanity. We've talked about this before. Some of the pseudepigrapher works explain, you know, why Satan, he didn't like man. God brought man into the garden and the, the, these gods said, who is this punk and why is he in here? We don't want him. We want to get rid of them. So how do we get rid of them? Let's make them disobey God. God will get rid of them. Their plan worked. They got them kicked out of the garden. All right? So they got them removed from Yahweh's temple, his Garden of Eden, his council, his family. And Genesis goes on in 3, 2 through 5 to say, And the woman said to the serpent. So, ladies, you can't see this or anybody. Talk, she's, you know, there's a snake wrapped around a tree. You've seen the pictures in the little books and stuff. A snake wrapped around a tree and Eve standing there talking to the snake. I don't know too many women that would do that, you know. <laughs> the woman said to the serpent, why are you talking to me, snake? No. <laughs> 
She said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So Eve says they're allowed to eat from all the trees in the garden except one. Now hang on to that thought, eating these trees, all right? Obviously, he's talking about the fruit of the trees, right? The serpent tells Eve, you won't die, so just go ahead and eat. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was to... It was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. <coughs> Excuse me. What just happened? What happens in this text? Eve ate the fruit of the tree. She took the fruit and she ate. God said, you're not allowed to do that. She did it. Now we're told by those holding the serpent seed doctrine that eating of the fruit of the tree is sexual sin. In other words, this is adultery on Eve's part with the devil. Now, I really hope you're thinking, wow, how on earth did they get that? <laughs> I mean, don't you see sexual sin in that verse? Come on, she took of the fruit and she ate. That's, everybody knows that's sexual sin, right? Those who support, I'm being facetious, I know you, I know, you know that. <clears throat> it's just a silly doctrine, I think, okay? Those who support the serpent seed idea cite many passages in the Bible as proof that their idea is correct. Anybody that has a doctrine is going to use the Bible, right? Almost without exception, these proofs that they give, they require an interpretation that is totally inappropriate to the context of the passage. But some people, if you can just kind of connect something somehow, they think, oh, okay, that makes sense. <clears throat> Genesis 2.9. Out of the ground, Yahweh, God, made a spring, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the tree of life. Now, Branham's view is that the tree of life in Genesis refers to Yeshua. And he writes this. If the tree of life is a person, then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a person also. It can't be otherwise. Really? There's no other options at all? Wow. I guess we got to believe it then, right? <clears throat> See, that's stuff that people say when they're trying, they don't know what they're saying, but they're trying to get you on. There's no other option. How, what else could it be, right? Thus, the righteous one and the wicked one stood side by side there in the midst of the garden. So we got a couple trees that represent people, right? Now, by arguing that Yeshua is the tree of life, Branham then concludes that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the serpent. This leads Branham to conclude that the sin in the Garden of Eden involves sexual relations between Eve and Satan. So we have the tree of life, we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, here's the thing. If Yeshua is the tree of life, then that would mean that after she had sex with Satan, which would be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God stopped Adam and Eve from having sex with Yeshua because he puts them out of the garden in Genesis 3. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, unless the man comes and has sex with him too. Well, I can't have that, right? Therefore, Yahweh God sent him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So they get expelled from the garden. This would also mean that up until this point, it would have been perfectly okay for Adam to have had sex with Yeshua because there's no prohibition against their eating from this tree. In fact, Adam was told he could eat from any of the trees of the garden, which must include the tree of life. And if that's true, what does Revelation 2.7 mean? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the serpent seed understanding leads to the abhorrent conclusion that believers will obtain eternal life because we will have sex with the Lord Yeshua. Also, the doctrine asserts that in this passage, Satan is being referenced as both the serpent and the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he's, they're both in the same scene, but he's playing a double part, I guess. Now, to support such a doctrine requires an inexcusable, biased interpretation. Okay, you really got to reach. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Now, the plain words of the text should be sufficient to disavow any kind of sexual act. There's simply an act of disobedience here. God said, don't eat that. She ate it. That was the sin. What in the text tells us that eating the fruit is not a sexual sin? Who else ate the fruit? (laughs) And she gave some to her husband. And he ate. Okay? I mean... Does that sound like nonsense to you? So if one is going to say that Eve's eating of the tree was a sexual nature, then it needs to be applied to Adam as well. Adam and Eve both ate of the fruit of the tree. And if eating the fruit is a euphemism for sexual intercourse, then God would have said that it was all right to have sex with all the other trees in the garden. Right? That's what he said. You can eat of every tree of the garden you want. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. So, is this just a sexual euphemism at some points, but not at others? Who were these other trees that Adam was told he could have sex with? I mean, Eve hadn't been created yet. The divine council, all the gods? Clearly, this text is about eating. The Bible makes it clear that the fall of man came from the disobedience of eating the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. It had nothing to do with intercourse, all right? Look at Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, by Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So, so also the text says, by one man's obedience, the many will be made right. Adam's disobedience is contrasted here with Christ's obedience. That's the issue. It's obedience to Yahweh that's the issue. So God confronts this first couple after their sin. Adam blames Eve and God, and Eve blames Satan. She said, and Yahweh God said unto the woman, Why is it that, you, that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Now, notice this is a King James Version here, okay? Translation. Because the King James Version puts the word beguiled in here. 
And this is why the people who hold to the serpent seed doctrine love the King James Version. All right, they say that the word beguiled in some contexts can be synonymous with seduced. But here's the problem with that. Context and scholarship would disagree. Branham explains it like this. He seduced her, Eve, and by her did Satan have a child vicariously. Cain bore the full spiritual characteristics of Satan and the animalistic, sensual, fleshly characteristics of the serpent. Now, this view requires the interpreter to suggest that beguiled in this context actually means sexually seduced. However, in contemporary translations, the Hebrew word that the King James renders beguiled is often translated as deceived, which fits the context really well. ESV translates that way, NIV translates that way, or some translations have tricked. None of these translations rather the word as seduced or imply any kind of sexual seduction. The serpent deceived me, ESV says, NIA. Now remember that the verb form nakash meant deceiver or diviner? Deceived, again, is deceived is from the Hebrew word nasha, all right, which is used 16 times in the Tanakh. In the King James Bible, it is translated beguiled once in that text. The only time they translate it that way. Seize once and deceive or deceive 13 times. And in the 15 other passages where nasha is used, not once is it used with sexual connotations. Eve is saying the deceiver, the nachash, deceived nashah me. The deceiver deceived me. That makes a lot more sense. The entire argument based on the word nashah is made up. In context, Eve is blaming the serpent for tricking her into eating the fruit of the forbidden tree. She is not stating that the serpent seduced her sexually. Now, she says she ate. This is another problem with the serpent seed view. The Hebrew word here is achal, ate. It's consistently used for physically eating and not for sex. So how did they turn eating into having sex? Good question. I'm glad you asked that. To support their view that eating is sexual, they go to verses like Proverbs 30.20. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats. Okay, we got an adulteress eating. That must mean sex, because adult, they don't really eat food, do they? Adulteresses. And wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. They see eats here as a euphemism for sin, which she commits. We see something similar to this in Proverbs 9, 17. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Well, Proverbs thirty twenty is not saying that eating is a euphemism for adultery, but for sin. See, the idea here is that when someone eats something that they shouldn't, they wipe their mouth so that you don't know they did that. They appear to have not eaten it. And in the same manner, when the adulteress commits sexual sin, she acts like she has done nothing wrong. That's all it's saying here. She's trying to hide, trying to cover it up. It's not saying that eating is a sexual sin. She hides the evidence of her shame, and she professes innocence. This is greatly overstated by the serpent seed people as proof that Eve's fall was sexual sin. Now it says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, again, the word ate is achal, 
which simply means to eat. This word and its derivatives are used 810 times in the Hebrew text. Let me just show you a couple of them that probably sexual sin won't fit in. Okay, Genesis 9.4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood. Now, if we apply eating here to the euphemism of sexual sin, what do we have? You shall not have sexual sin with flesh that has life in it. That is blood. In other words, necrophilia is okay, but nothing else. That, does that make any sense at all? <laughs> I sure hope not. That would be necrophilia, but we know necrophilia is wrong because the Mosaic law specified that touching a dead body made a person unclean. If you can't touch it, you certainly can't have sex with it. All right. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Hebrews must not have sexual intercourse with leavened bread, but only unleavened bread. All right. Exodus 12, 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Well, if that's eating sexual sin, okay, <laughs> that's kind of crazy. All right. All right, so we have eight, the same exact wording, achal, used in all these verses. And you got to ask, why is a euphemism in Genesis 3 for sex, but not in 9 or not in Exodus 12? Well, one of the answers, it could be context. Context always should give us the answer as to why a word is used to mean what it means. But, however, for this word to mean sexual act in Genesis 3, and then not in the rest of the uses in the Bible, the context would have to clearly justify a different application in Genesis 3, and it doesn't. In order to read such a meaning into the text, the interpreter must already believe that it is in fact a euphemism for a sexual act. And that's just circular reasoning, and that fails big time. Okay? Genesis 3.15, But I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the proto-evangelum, the first preaching of the gospel. Now, the King James Version, the first portion of it reads like this. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Now, the serpent seed doctrine takes the view that both seeds are literal. As a result, it attempts to show that Satan had a physical seed just as the woman does. But if we use a little bit of logic here, we can easily see that this interpretation completely falls apart. The Bible does not state that the enmity would be between Satan's seed and Adam's seed, but rather it would be between Satan's seed and the woman's. If Satan did in fact produce his seed through Eve, then that seed would also be the seed of Eve. Therefore, her seed would in fact be both Satan's and Adam's. This makes completely an illogical argument that God is putting enmity between her physical seed and her physical seed. It doesn't work. This is not a distinction God is making. Let me show you a verse that I think simply just destroys this doctrine, but they like to argue about it. Genesis 4.1. Now, Adam knew Eve. Okay, knew there is a euphemism for sex. Okay? <laughs> Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. All right? To me, this is the death of this whole doctrine. It clearly shows that Cain was the son of Adam, not the devil. 
okay? Eating is not a euphemism for sex, all right? And neither, but here, new is, all right? So she bare Cain. Cain then would seem to be the result of Adam knowing his wife and not from some kind of sexual act with Satan. Now, in the end, it says, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Okay, Eve declares this. Does this seem a little weird if the proclamation is saying, I'm pregnant with the child of Satan. I got help from the Lord to get pregnant by Satan. But those who hold to the serpent seed doctrine, they take us to, to explain this, they take us to Genesis 5. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, from this verse, they argue that Adam fathers a son in his own likeness after his image. And because those phrases were not used of Cain in Genesis 4.1, then Cain can't really be a son. That That's not really a good argument. I mean, if you go to Genesis 4.25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, and she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. This wipes out the Genesis 5-3 argument that the basis for the argument in Genesis 4-1, we don't have this image and language in 4-25. We don't need it. Adam knew his wife. She conceived and bore a son. He doesn't have to go into all this other stuff. Verse 25 connects back to verse 1, so Adam is the father of both Cain and Seth. The language of Genesis 5-3 doesn't telegraph anything different. Now, this view that Cain was the offspring of Satan focuses on some unusual things in the Hebrew text of Genesis 4.1 and in a targum that's found on this verse. Now, the Hebrew at the end of Genesis 4.1 is kind of strange. Eve literally says, I have created a man, Yahweh. The, the scriptures, 2009, actually come pretty close to what it literally says. I have gained a man, Yahweh. Now, because of this literal translation, certain cults and sects hold the views that Yahweh had a sexual relationship with Eve. Now, as weird as that might be, Yahweh is not Satan. So how does that prove their doctrine? Why would the serpent seed people use this first? Well, hang on, I'll try to explain. Right before the word Yahweh is a two-letter particle, Aleph Tav. This Aleph Tav is all through the Scripture, okay? And people argue about what it means. But Yeshua said, I am the first, I am the last. I am the Aleph, I am the Tav. And I just think it, it points us to Christ in so many texts, okay? But, you know, scholars will say, well, it usually marks a direct object. But it can also be a preposition. So scholars contend that we have to take the Aleph Tav here as a preposition, the translation then is that I have created a man with Yahweh. Now the ESV has this, with the help of Yahweh, but the English word help, that's not in the text at all. They just added that to kind of smooth it out a little bit. There's no Hebrew equivalent in that verse. Now in his book, Outside of Eden, Cain in the ancient versions of Genesis, Scarlatta says this, he says, if the Aleph Tav is taken as a predicate accusative, the sentence could be translated, I have acquired, created a man who is Yahweh, which could signify that, so I've created a man, Yahweh, which could signify that Eve believed that she had given birth to the promised seed of Genesis 
Now, that was actually Martin Luther's view. All right, maybe because of the difficulty of the Hebrew, maybe because the translator was smoking something, we have a very strange translation of this verse. Really strange translation in one of the Targums. Now, Targums are Aramaic translations of the Tanakh. And Targum Pseudo-Jonathan has this reading for Genesis 4.1. Adam knew his wife Eve, who had conceived from Samael, the angel of the Lord. Then from Adam, her husband, she bore his twin sister and Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the earth. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So who conceived from Samael, the angel of the Lord? That's Genesis 4, 1 through 2 in Clark's edition of the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan. All right? Here's what the verse actually says. So Eve's (coughs) exclamation isn't even in the verse. The translator, or should I say the fabricator, he just inserts his own words in here. Okay? He just comes along and I just throw something in there. This is not a translation at all. This is totally made up. Samael, does anybody know who that is? Well, familiar with Samael from the Pseudepigrapha. This is just another name for Satan. You see it in the Ascension of Isaiah. You see it in the Martyrdom of Isaiah. Samael is a Satan figure. And he's just inserted into this text. There's a complete absence in Genesis 4 or any other passage that Cain was fathered by Satan. The idea is just not present in the Bible. This is what we call eisegesis. Okay, you read something into the Scripture that's not there. But they, they're grasping at straws, so they, hey, look, it's even in the Targum. Maybe that view was around, and so the Targum inserted this. You know, the translator of the Targum, he put that in there. Oh, I can explain that. Look, at it's right here. People, this teaching is not just wrong, it's destructive. Because it leads directly and logically to the racist idea that certain races are irredeemable. The only possible outcome of such a worldview is prejudice and bigotry. Okay? Well, don't even bother sharing the gospel with them. They can't get saved. They're the seed of the serpent. The Aryan Nation, we know that is right. The Aryan Nation website states this. We believe that there are literal children of Satan in the world today. These children are the descendants of Cain, who was the result of Eve's original sin, her physical seduction by Satan. Wonder where they got that from. Make sense? See, people, racism and bigotry are sin. And this serpent seed teaching leads to both. I mean, we can fail to love people. We can even hate people because they're Satan's seed. And therefore, they're not created in the image of God. We don't have to love them. We don't have to care about them. We can just kill them or whatever. Okay, they're just evil people. All right. So people are not evil because of Satan, making them do things. And if they're not evil because they're physical descendants of Satan, why are people so evil? Well, I think biblically it's easily explained. People are evil because they have a heart condition, okay? Notice Yahweh's evaluation of man, Genesis 6, 5. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
You know, there's no more comprehensive assessment of the total depravity of mankind than we see right here in this verse. This verse tells us not that man's behavior or periodic inclinations were evil, but that the evil was so deep-seated that it saturated every intention of the thoughts of his heart. The heart's motivation and drives are evil continually. And that is in opposition to God and to His glory. Left to follow our own way. Apart from God, men and women always choose evil. I mean, Adam, he's in the garden. He's in a perfect environment. He can do anything he wants to do in that garden except eat of one tree. What does he want to do? Eat of the one. Why is he going against, I mean, man hadn't fallen yet and still he's evil. And it's not just what we do. It's who we are without the direct involvement and transformation of our hearts by God. Look at Genesis 8.21. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Those of you that have kids, you know, if you're honest, you don't have to teach them to be evil. They just pick it up all by themselves. Okay? We were around a couple little kids this weekend, and I saw, yep, that's... <laughs> every intention of the, I mean, they kill each other for a toy. They got 10 toys, but this kid has one toy and they want that one toy they don't have. And they'll kill for it. And that's what the Minnesota Crime Commission came out with a statement saying, you know, if it wasn't for their size, children would be murderous. They'd kill you for what they want. You know it. I mean, and who teaches those kids to lie? How did they learn to lie so early? I didn't do that. Where'd they learn that? Go to lying school at night, or what happens there? Ecclesiastes 9.3. This is an evil in all that is done under the earth, that the same happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. The Bible bears this out over and over. Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sin has infected and affected every part of our being. But to say that is to say nothing more than the historic Protestant doctrine of total depravity. Now, when we say that man is totally depraved, we're not saying that he is as bad as he can possibly be. It means that sin has affected every part of his being, his mind, his emotions, his will, his intellect, his moral reasoning, his decision-making, his words, his deeds. No part of man's being is exempt from the debilitating effects of sin. And notice what James says. James in chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, he says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted. Now, usually people want to blame temptation on Satan. Satan made me do that. That's not what James says. James says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So his desires must be evil if they're pulling him in the wrong direction. James says, then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So there's the process. You have this desire for something that's wrong, and you go and you do it anyway, and it brings forth death. Because the heart is evil, man desires evil things. I think Romans 3 gives us a picture of man and his 
not very pretty at all. Romans 3, 10 through 17 says, as written, none is righteous. <laughs> I like this. Someone's about to say, what about? No, not one. Nobody, okay? No one understands. No one seeks for God. Someone should tell some of these pastors that have what's called seeker-sensitive churches. <laughs> There's nobody who seeks after God, Okay. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. This teaching on the sinfulness of man is something you're not going to find in colleges or universities today. You only find this in the Word of God. Everybody else can tell, oh man, is basically a good person. That's not what the Bible says. So you've got to choose. You're going to scripture, believe Scripture or believe what the world tries to tell you. So what can we do about it? There's evil people out there. And like I said, let me make this clear. I think that the, this gross... Deep-seated evil is in the top echelon. Although all people, their hearts are evil. But we're seeing it manifest in power because when you add money and you add power, people want everything. All right? And you got people like Bill Gates who's so power-hungry, he doesn't even want you on the same earth he's on. So he wants to kill you off. And people, when you got a person who's a eugenist pushing a vaccine, guess what? They're not looking out for your benefit. They want to kill you off. And I've heard Bill Gates with his own mouth say that. They're sick. So what do we do about it? Can we do anything? Are we just stuck with all this? Well, let me give you a couple steps that I think we can take to help deal with this evil. First and foremost, we need to be sharing the gospel. The gospel is the power, dunamis, the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I think that's a bad translation. The word ashamed there is the Greek word epiais kunomai. And epiais kunomai means disappointed. Of course, Paul wasn't ashamed. We know he wasn't ashamed, but he's saying, listen, I'm not disappointed, man. This is powerful, okay? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The announcement that Yeshua is Lord is the power of God that brings deliverance. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. People, the gospel is the greatest power that we have. And we need to share it, understanding that even people that we think are the most evil, most corrupt you know, we choose who to share the gospel. They, they, I don't think they'd be a good candidate for salvation. I'm not going to waste my time. I know of a guy that was really, really wicked who became one of the greatest Christians that ever lived. His name was Paul. His name was Saul, and he got changed to Paul. But he's on way killing Christians, and he meets the Lord, and all of a sudden now he's out suffering for that gospel. We see the power. And people like him. We see the power in all kinds of people. I saw it in my own life. Okay? It was a transformation because the gospel does that. 
So we need to share the gospel like we believe that it's powerful and it can change lives. And we shouldn't pick and choose who will share it. We just need to be free to share it. Stop being embarrassed and share the gospel. It's the power of God. All right, secondly, we need to live righteously. We need to be an image bearer of the Lord. You say, well, how does living righteously confront evil? Well, God says it does in Romans 12, 21. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, what's interesting here, in this context, he's talking about retaliation. He said, don't, don't, you don't seek revenge. Revenge is of God. You don't do that. So don't be overcome with that evil, but overcome the evil with good. And I think in this context, it has the idea of the temptation to pay back evil for evil. And when people do wrong, they, they expect to receive evil back. They expect retaliation. And when they receive kindness instead, they see the Lord. So we overcome evil people by living righteously. That's basically what this said. If you look at the context here, overcome evil with good. And the good here is living righteously. It's being an image bearer. It's imitating the Lord. When we do that, we overcome evil. I've literally seen this happen in, in, in dealing with evil people in my own life. Treated them with kindness. Treated, responded nicely. And I've seen them transform right before my eyes. The Bible says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Seen it happen. And it's exciting. Because I went into it saying, God, you said this. I want to see it happen. So share the gospel like you believe it's powerful. Like you believe, hey, this could really change lives. Secondly, live righteously. Which means we don't live like them. We don't respond like them. Thirdly, get involved. And what I mean by that, pray for your country, pray for its leaders, get involved in our culture. And people, this is where dispensationalism has damaged the church immeasurably, okay? Because dispensationalism has a slogan, why polish brass on a sinking ship? In other words, why do we work with the culture? Why do we try to fix anything? The ship's going down. Okay? We don't need to polish brass. It's sinking. Don't, you know, we don't need to arrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, we don't need to do that. And that was their slogan. And because of that, believers pulled out of everything. They pulled out of the culture. And we're to do the exact opposite. We're to be involved in the culture, making a difference. But dispensationalism wants to sit around and wait for the rapture. Don't try to fix anything. We're getting out of here any minute. So let's leave it, be corrupt as it is. Let me tell you something, believers. Please, please get this. Our ship is not sinking. It's not. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And we are called to influence the culture in which we live. We need Christians in every area of life. We need teachers in public schools that are Christians. What an impact they can have. And, you know, yes, we got plenty of those teachers go to Christian schools, but can you imagine the impact they have in a public school when they really stand up for God? We need mechanics that are Christians. 
We need doctors, lawyers. We need writers that are Christians. We need actors that are Christians. Christians have pulled out of all Hollywood. And so what happens? Sinfulness just takes over. You try to watch a movie that's not pushing the gay agenda, not pushing transgender, not pushing any of that stuff, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find it because they have an agenda. And they're pushing it down our throats. And the people think, well, this must be worldwide. Everybody believes this way. No, they don't. Again, the megaphone is pushing their agenda. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. But Christians have pulled out of it. We need Christians to make movies. So you can see a good, a wholesome movie. You can watch some entertainment that's not anti-God. Get involved. You get on your school board and affect what happens at that school. You get on your city council, any kind of form of government, and just make a difference where you live. We have to get involved of all areas of society. That's the only way we can have an effect on society. The salt, we're supposed to be salt and light. We've got to get out of the salt shaker. You've got to influence. And people, if we're just living righteously and godly, wherever we are, this should be happening. In schools, at work, in our neighborhood, wherever. Notice what Yahweh said to the exiles who had been taken captive to Babylon. This is a famous chapter because of verse 11, but we're not going to talk about verse 11, okay? That's, <laughs> we've said enough about that. <clears throat> Jeremiah 29 says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. These people have been taken out of their hometown, Jerusalem. They've been taken to Babylon because they've overcome Jerusalem. So they're exiles. Now, what does it mean to be an exile? Well, it, it's kind of, it can be a broad term. The Britannica Dictionary defines it this way. A situation in which you are forced to leave your country or home and go and live in a foreign country. Would that apply to Christians today? Are we exiles from the kingdom of God? Are we living in a foreign land? I'd say we are. This is not our home. We're kingdom citizens. We actually have a dual citizenship because we are citizens here. But look what God tells them to do. He says, build houses and live in them. Well, that's like normal life, right? Plant gardens and eat the produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. This is like, live your life, people. You're in a foreign land. Live your life. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I really like the way the Christian Standard Bible puts verse 7. It says this, Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Okay, for us, that's Chesapeake or Virginia Beach or Portsmouth or Norfolk or Newport, whatever. Okay, you get the point. Or Stan, you're in some other country. <laughs> North Carolina. <laughs> Pursue the well-being of the city, South Mills. I've deported you too. Pray to Yahweh on its behalf. Now, here's the thing you've got to get, people. When it thrives, you will thrive. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? When God blesses the place where you're living and it's just an enjoyable place, you thrive. It's great. This is nice. The city's thriving. We're thriving. Pray for the city. Get involved in your city. The Bible teaches when those in leadership are good and honest, we thrive. So you wonder why we're not thriving right now? <laughs> it's because we've got some 
corrupt, evil people in government. They're out for themselves. It's just so much corruption, all right? Proverbs 28, 28 says, When the wicked come to power, the people hide. But when they are destroyed, the righteous flourish. Now the they here, when they are destroyed, is the wicked. When the wicked people are destroyed, the righteous flourish. So pray for Christians to get involved in all areas of society. And listen, people, one of the things I'm praying for is for God to destroy the wicked leaders in this country. You say, oh, that's not very nice. It's called an imprecatory prayer, and you find them all through the Bible, okay? These people, and here's the difference. People always ask, well, how can you, God said, pray for your enemies. Listen, these are enemies of the people. This is not personal. They're not personally attacking me. I'm praying for our country, for our nation, because we have evil, evil people who are, you know, our justice system is a big sham right now. Everything is a mess. You know, and the whole reason for the January 6th things and people that are still in prison was to tell you peons, keep your mouth shut. Don't question what we're doing. Don't protest. You show up at the Capitol, we'll put you in prison, okay? So that, that's their threat to us. They're be quiet or you're going to be in trouble. But I'm praying for the destruction of these evil, godly people. I don't think they're seeds of serp- Satan. They act like it. But I just know they're evil people. And when money gets involved and power gets involved, it's like they just keep... And they're working together because they're supporting one another. And they're helping one another. And things need to change. But I really think things can change from a grassroots level if we get involved. And we're seeing it around the country. I mean, Christians are going to the school boards and saying, enough of this nonsense. They're firing school boards. They're putting new people in. They're taking over the school. They're, exa- they're getting involved with what the kids are doing, and they're finding out there's so much corruption. Why? Why do you need to teach, you know, third graders about transgender? Why do you have to have these transgender people go and read storybooks to kids in the library? What's the point of that? The people are starting to fight back, and I'm, there's an awakening happening, and I'm so glad for that. We need to overcome evil with good. So we share the gospel. We share it like we believe it's powerful. And we share it with anybody we can. Secondly, we live righteous lives. That will stand out in our community. That will stand out in our world. Thirdly, we get involved. We pray for our country. We pray for our leaders. We get involved in the culture. It can make a difference. And again, let me just say, I don't think it's the the majority of our country that are these deep, deep, evil-seated people. I think they're at the top echelon, and they're all working together. And the biggest problem to me is the mainstream media, because they have the megaphone, and that's all people hear. They're just hearing what the mainstream media is saying, and people say, well, that must be everywhere. That must be all of us. No, it's not. But we don't have that voice. So we've got to stop that mainstream media and get a, some true people speaking out, actually telling us news and telling us what's happening, because we haven't had that for a long time. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, I know you have us here for a reason, Father. And I just ask you to give us the motivation, the encouragement to live righteous, holy lives in this world we're living in right now. That people would see a difference in the way we act, the way we talk, the way we think. That we would be sharing the gospel of Christ with those around us, Lord. 
Father, help us to change the culture in which we live through the power of your gospel, through the power of a righteous, holy life. May we be getting involved in different things, Lord, in our culture so we can have an effect upon it. Give us wisdom. Give us direction, Father. May we honor you and the decisions we make and the things we do. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay. <laughs> Questions? Comments? All right, this is from Ron. Ron Ron says, The legislation you referenced at the beginning was the Smith-Munt Moderation Act of 2012, originally from 1948, right? That's what they changed that act, what Obama Obama signed. He says, It legalized media lying without consequence. You know Congress can do that too? You know it's okay for Congress to lie to us? There's no penalty for that? They're, I mean, they do. They open, every time they open their mouth, they lie to us, and there's no penalty. Now, if you lie to them, you can go to prison. I'm like, the hypocrisy in all this mess. He says, as Christians, we need to be very careful when following people in the truth movement. I agree 100%. You have to use discerning. There's a lot of people out there. Not all of them are really truthers, okay? They're just looking for a following, all right? I know many of them personally and have firsthand knowledge that many, and sadly most of those in the movement, are New Agers. Yeah, again, that's what I said. I think S.G. he's a New Age, you know, and so we have to be careful, all right? I think some of the information he puts out is correct, but when he gets talking about anything spiritual, I'm like, I check out. I'm like, this guy is nonsense, all right? Their understanding of God is much more Gnostic than biblical. Agreed. They mean well, but are not mature enough in their understanding of Scripture to differentiate between the two. That's the one thing I've seen with most truthers is that they talk about God. They talk about Christ. But again, like Ron's saying, you got to be careful. He says, this is not a warning not to follow individuals. What is happening here? But to be prayerful and, be, and use discernment. Absolutely. Again, there's a lot of them out there. We have to use discernment. But I, I tell you, you don't need discernment to know don't follow the mainstream media. They're absolutely lying about everything they say. Um, Doug asked, Pastor Dave, do you consider the reprobate a race of people? Oh, there's reprobates in all races, okay? It's not about race. When it comes to Christianity, it's not about race at all. That's the whole thing. God, the gospel goes out to everybody. Okay, it's not a certain race. It's not Judaism anymore. It's whoever. Uh, Gary and Chris from PA. Excellent, Dave. You had me wondering where you were going with this today with the serpent seed thing, but you beautifully roped it right back into total sense and understanding. Thanks, Gary. Sorry, I lost you for a while there. Um, I was trying to build a point. Norm says, so we really have a sinful nature, or is it because of the legal decree of imputation? In other words, God decreed us evil so that so that's what we are. I, I think, you know, you're talking about the decree of the fact that when man sinned, 
God declared us all sinful. I just think when God created man, there's something in man that goes away from God. We saw it with Adam. Adam went the wrong direction. All men go that wrong direction. The heart's evil. That's what God told the Jews of the new covenant. I'm going to take out your stony heart and put within you a heart of flesh. And until that happens, we can't expect people to be good or be right or, you know, people, they're sinners. That's what they do. And I think it's so foolish that Christians are, oh, they do this or that. They're not Christians. What do you want from them? You know, it's foolish to go tell them don't sin. That's what sinners do. Share the gospel with them. Does the pre-Adamite movement hold any biblical, historical anything? The pre-Adamite movement. You know what he's talking about? Okay, that's uh, all right. Yeah. Um, no, I don't. I don't buy. That. I don't buy that. And here's why: because that they're saying, okay, God created all these people and had nothing to do with any of them. Just created them and said, go do your thing. And then, and then he decided to pick out Adam out of all these people and have a relationship with him. I, I just, I don't see it biblically. You know, the Bible talks about Adam being the first man. I, well, of course, they try to say that's the first covenant man, but. No, I don't see people wandering around aimlessly. I think God had a purpose in creating people, and it was to have fellowship. So to create a bunch of people that have nothing to do with them, I don't think the Bible backs it up. Okay, anybody else? Oh, just in time, Dana. FYI, we need to be careful when we use the word race because truly there's only one race It's called man. There are different kinds of men, but we're all one race. Yeah, the human race. I mean, if that's what you're talking about, absolutely, we are human. But, you know, I mean, again, they like to use the idea of race to cause division, you know, among us, to get us fighting one another. You've got to have something different against somebody so you can argue and fight with